Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Great. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's great. Thank you, Ben. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Matt. I uh, lead the team that helps lead Mosaic, and it's my privilege to be continuing our preaching series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you missed last week, it was our 10-year anniversary, and we uh, got to celebrate that together. Uh, We made a couple of videos to sort of bring that whole thing together, and so if you missed those, then worth going uh, online and uh, checking those out. I want to ask you a very simple question this morning. Have you ever been rescued Have you ever been rescued, uh, like from a life-threatening situation, perhaps uh, by a medic or a policeman or a friend or a fireman or something like that? Um, Personally, I've never been rescued in that way. Um, Hopefully, I'll never. Well, never be in the situation requiring rescue. But my kids have quite a lot. Uh, And if you're a parent, you will understand that often kids often get into these situations where they need a bit of a rescue. One such one involved Ben, which is my middle son. When he was much younger, he uh, tripped and fell out in the garden and managed to smash his uh, forehead against a sharp um, uh, paving slab. And so he sort of cut his head open here and obviously we rushed him to hospital and he got it sort of patched up, bandage and home again, glued together, I think. And um, after a few days, we noticed that Ben's face started to change and morph. And, um, and it basically looked like he'd spent five rounds with a boxer. So his face began to puff up and swell. And so we took him uh, to a doctor and sort of said, we're a little bit concerned. And he just said, well, this is sort of the bruising that's come from the, uh, the injury. Anyway, a week later, the, his face was really remarkably different and puffy. And a friend of ours um, said, I actually think it seems to be a little bit beyond just the sort of the bruising from the accident. Why don't you just go to A&E and just have someone check it out? And so we followed their advice. We went down to A&E and wonderful doctor had a look at our son and peeled back the bandage to reveal a festering wound. It was full of pus. And so the, the bruising and the swelling was actually all the infection in his head. And you could like see through to the skull. It was all very gruesome. And wonderfully, uh, the medics there at the hospital 
provided a rescue of sorts for him. If that infection was allowed to continue, he'd really be in trouble. We left the hospital extremely grateful. We love a good rescue story, don't we? Especially when it involves your own kids. You know, you like a good rescue story. It's funny, when I think of all my favorite films, so films like Star Wars and Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, they're all about a rescue. We love a good rescue. And I think we love a good rescue story because we are made in the image and likeness of God and he likes a good rescue story too. We love rescue stories because the story of the Bible is the greatest rescue story ever told. It's the story of the letter that we are reading right now to what would have been the biggest church at the time in the world written to people just like you and me, saying whether we're aware of it or not, all of us need a rescue of epic proportions. So just to be clear, right from the start, what this uh, few verses, 10 verses in Ephesians 2 do, the sort of summary would be that there are two types of rescue to choose from in the world. And the Apostle Paul says, number one, Most religions teach something called works, meaning you can save yourself and this world by doing certain things or by not doing certain things. And so this puts your attempts to save yourself at the center of your religion. In other words, you're the person you're trusting in most to make this life good. You're the savior. So it's interesting, I was chatting to a Muslim guy recently and I asked him what was at the center of his faith and for him it was living a holy life. It was prayer, it was the mosque, it was the Quran and those things for him made up his salvation. But interestingly, it's not just the world, some world religions that would teach works, but the most common thing I hear when I chat to people about what they believe and what they want to get out of life is that there is an underlying belief in our society that being a good person saves you or saves the planet. So being a good father, being a good friend, being a good neighbor, being a good recycler, being generous to the poor, being honest and hardworking, is all those things contribute to making the world a better place. And everything will be okay if you put those things in line. So often um, you'll have um, Uh, You'll have better people believing in better education, in saving, mankind saving itself, better technology. And what's fascinating is never is this sort of thinking thought of as a religion, but its name is humanism, and it's the belief that we can solve the world's problems. And so this whole category of saving yourself, saving the world, just working hard, trying to, the the progress of man will sort all the problems of the world. The Apostle Paul calls that whole category of thinking works. Works says, do this, don't do that, so that you'll be saved from whatever fate is set before you. Everyone clear what works is? It's trying really hard. Everyone's a bit dozy today. Everyone clear what works is? Yes, brilliant. So that's one type of rescue that the Apostle Paul gives us in Ephesians 2. The second type is Christianity. And this suggests we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by Jesus' works. And Paul calls this rescue grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Now, a few years back, I was actually involved in another rescue. Um, 
a young lady, teenager, was going on a zip wire, one of these things where you hang on and you fly downhill very fast. And the point of the zip wire is at the end, you had to let go before you sort of smashed into the tree that was holding the wire. You had to let go into this big, it was like a lagoon, a big lake. And we went and it was very, very cold and even colder in the water. And so this poor girl, she sort of like screamed with terror coming down this zip wire, let go and landed in the water. And there was quite a number of us watching, taking photos, that sort of thing. And it was soon apparent that this girl, because of the coldness of the water, was just literally froze. And so she sort of would go under and then sort of come back up, sputtering for breath and go under. And all of us, all the while, were watching. And we were like, is she going to be all right? Because you suddenly have that moment where you realize that this is not just her thrashing around in the water. She's in trouble. And then we had the awkward moment where we all sort of looked at each other like, who's going to go in to that really cold water? And so I obviously stripped off, jumped in and swam out and grabbed her and pulled her out of the water. I think that little rescue and her situation is a great analogy of what the Apostle Paul is trying to share. She could not save herself. She was dying, and she needed someone from outside to rescue her. And the Bible says the world is messed up, politically, socially, morally, economically messed up. There's violence, there's inequality, there's wars, there's hatred, there's poverty. And the world cannot save itself. We cannot save ourselves. We need, save ourselves. We need a rescuer. Apparently, I've got this quote up here, in the last three and a half thousand years of human history, only 300 years have been warless. So 8,000 treaties have been made and broken. And little wonder one cynic defined peace as that brief glorious moment in history when everyone stands around reloading. I mean, that is our world. We don't need me to tell you that we live in a broken place, a broken world. And the Bible's take on it is that the reason it is broken is because fundamentally we are selfish and sinful. Everything we do and we think is tainted by sin. And because of this, we fail to live in the relationship with God and with one another that we're actually created for. And life is empty. We're stunted. We're ultimately on our own, not what we're meant to be until God steps in and rescues us. You know, we are drowning in this cold water, spluttering for breath, and we need someone to dive in and save us. And that's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes and lives a life without sin. And so it is his life, not ours, that saves us. He dies on the cross in our place for our sins. So it is his death, not ours, that saves us. And he rises from the grave proving that everything he said was true. So it's his victory over sin that saves us, not ours. Believing someone else saves you is a very humbling thing. And it's often the stumbling stone that stops people coming to faith. It's because you've got to realize that you can't do it. That you have to trust in someone else who's done it for you. And I want to suggest that to those of you that are trusting today in your own works to save you, to make this world a better place, I want to just ask you, do you really think those things can save you and save this planet? You know, is that really where you want to put your hope for the rest of your life? 
Is there any chance at all that you're actually trusting in a false religious system or a false moral system or a false spiritual system? You're not, it's interesting this, you're not just saved by having faith in someone or something. Rather, the thing you trust to save you actually needs to be a saviour. So it's not good enough just to say, I'm a person of faith. But you've got to be a person of faith in a saviour. Are you trusting today in a saviour that can actually save you? So listen, a summary of Ephesians chapter 2 is this. Works fail you and grace saves you. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, works fail you, grace saves you. Ben, are you feeling slightly told off there from Faye? Oh, oh, you had it from three ways. Okay. So the verse that we would pin this on is verse 8. It's a lovely summary of the chapter. It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Jesus alone is worthy of our faith. Jesus alone is our saviour. And if anyone is trusting in anyone or anything other than him, or in addition to him, then they're trusting in the wrong thing and they will not experience salvation. The last words of the Buddha is actually this. It's quite remarkable. The last words of the Buddha. All component things in the world are changeable and not lasting. Work hard to gain your salvation. The last words of Jesus when he died on the cross, it is finished. That is Paul's theme and point in Ephesians 2. Another rescue that I was involved with was uh, when I was uh, surfing with my brother-in-law and we were down in Cornwall and we were right out there trying to catch some waves and the sea was pretty rough and we were both ready to catch a wave together and for whatever reason, I managed to catch the wave, but by the time that I swam back out, I discovered that my brother-in-law, Martin, hadn't made it with me, nor was he in the place that I had left him. And he'd actually got caught in a, a rip current, and out of his depth, not a great swimmer, he was being taken quite a long way out from the seashore and he started to panic, started to really get worried about his own safety and so started to struggle. And uh, it was only until uh, a lifeguard uh, on one of these jet skis who was patrolling the beach found him and dragged him onto this little stretcher thing that lies behind the jet ski, brought him in and quite it was quite ironic that he landed on the beach and there was actually a film crew filming the whole episode and he was asked as he was lying in the sand panting for breath do you mind if we use that footage it was brilliant and he's like <laughs> dying on the beach now imagine as he's there in the deep water sucked out to sea the the, the guy comes uh, the bronzed lifeguard comes on the jet ski and offers him a hand and my brother-in-law martin says Actually, I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cope with this <laughs> as I'm dying. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you for offering. I'm fine. You would think he was either crazy or unaware of the danger that he's in. And you may be here today asking, why on earth are they going on and on about rescue? Why are they just really bigging this up? Why would I need to be saved from anything? 
Well, the bottom line is this. If you don't have a sense of the danger you're in, then you won't have a real urgency for a saviour. And so what the Apostle Paul does in this reading, it gives us four things to help us see why rescue is relevant to all of us in the room. And if you have already received that rescue, if you're a Christian here today, then it's going to remind you what you've been saved from so that you don't boast in yourself and your own ability to save yourself. So four things. Number one, we're dead in sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I don't know if you've seen uh, the film Shaun of the Dead. I don't know if I can really recommend it. Have we got a picture of it somewhere? Yeah, there it is. Shaun of the Dead looks a wholesome film, doesn't it? But I, uh, forget about the film. I love the subtitle to this film. It says this, a man decides, so this is like on the advertising, a man decides to turn his moribund life around by winning back his ex-girlfriend, reconciling his relationship with his mother and dealing with an entire community that has returned from the dead to eat the living. I mean, what a great like, advert for a film. This film is about battling a group of zombies. And that is how the Apostle Paul is describing us. It's like we're a load, load of zombies walking in time to Satan's tune, all following him in almost a trance-like state. Zombies are the living dead. They walk around as if they're alive, but we all know they're dead and have been so for a long time. Before Christ... We are the living dead. Now, you might be sat there thinking it's a little bit harsh. I know I don't look great this morning, but that's harsh. Really, I'm not dead. No, the Bible says you are dead, spiritually speaking, six foot under, unable to know God, unable to change your life, unable to change the world. There is a barrier between you and God. It's six feet of earth. It's a chasm you cannot cross. You are stuck inside your coffin. And in that place, you cannot reach out to God. And this state of affairs is traced back to two important words, transgressions and sins. A transgression or a trespass is a wrong step across a known boundary or deviation from the right path. You trespass on someone's land. It means you've walked from the right road across a boundary marker into a wrong place. The other is a Greek word that is translated sin in the English. It means to miss the mark, to fall short of a certain standard. And so together they cover every aspect of wrongdoing. To fall short, it means that we're a failure. To trespass, it means that we're rebellious. We've done stuff that God tells us we're not to, and we've been unsuccessful in our attempts to live to God's standards. We are either actively or passively dead in our sinfulness. We're dead without Jesus. So that's like the first hammer blow to why we can't save ourselves. It gets worse. Paul describes it in verses two and three. The ways of the world. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So not only are we dead apart from Jesus, but we've succumbed to the power of the world. Now what's that, the power of the world? Well, 
This is referring to the evil and darkness in the world and also the mindset or the worldview or the way of thinking that the world gives us that is apart from God. So some people call it secularism or postmodernity or individualism or whatever it is, it's the way of thinking in a system that doesn't have God at its center. And we live and we breathe in that culture. And so it dominates everything we do. It tells us we're too fat or we're too thin. It tells us what is right and what is wrong. It tells us we're in control of our lives. A happy life or self-actualization is real. So we can strive to make our lives the best they can be. Um, Zadie Smith, who's an author, um, she lives in Manhattan. She's an English lady. Uh, I haven't got this quote on the screen, but just listen to this. This is what she says. In an exercise class recently, the instructor shouted at me, at all of us, don't let your mind set limits that aren't really there. You know, that's something we would, I think, hear quite a lot. Don't let your mind set limits that aren't really there. And she says, you'll find this attitude all over Manhattan. It is encouraged and reflected in the popular culture, especially in the movies, so many of which, after all, begin their creative lives here in Manhattan. But our happiness, our miseries, our blasted healths, they're all within our own power to create or destroy. Now, make of that what you will, but what she's saying is that People see their lives and their destiny as something that they can shape, they can take control of. It's a way of thinking in the world. It tells us that we're better than them. It tells us to look after number one. It tells us we should be rich. We should make money from our property, have two weeks in the sun every week, drive a new car. You know, I've been having neighbor, neighbor problems. Uh, in my new house and the root of the issues with us as a family is to do with the noise we make, the way that we play in the garden, the mess that a family generates. And for them, the heart of the issue is it all brings down the price of their property, which they have just put on the market. Praise God, if anyone wants to buy that house. But that is at the root of the trouble we have had with them, is that they see fundamentally we are ruining their chances of making a profit on their house. It is the pattern of the world that we live in. It tells if it, is, if it feels good, and hurts no one, then it must be right. And you know, it's just so helpful to step back and ask why you believe what you do. The Bible says you're just following the ways of this world. So listen, why are we dead? We're dead spiritually because we've been influenced by the ways of the world. And number three, the devil. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This phrase, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, refers to the devil. It's actually pretty unclear exactly what Paul tried to, uh, was trying to say in using that phrase. It seems to refer to the one who has authority in an unseen world or the foggy atmosphere which the word air could be translated as. And he's not just at work out there, 
But the devil is at work in here. Verse two, the spirit who is now at work in those that are being disobedient. We do believe as a church there is a devil and we do believe in demons. We believe that Satan is an angel who was created by God as a, as a minister, as a messenger, who became proud in his heart and rebelled against God and led a rebellion against God. And he is at work in the world. And what's fascinating is that we live in an age that tries to minimize the devil. We have funny pictures of the devil, funny images of what we think he's like. You know, the, the horns and the pointy tail, the red devil. And our culture tries to pretend that this being doesn't exist. We also have a culture that minimizes his power, his darkness. But many of us in the world know what it is to experience very dark moments when the world of demons and the devil are very real to us and have somehow been revealed. We've sensed evil in the room. We've seen that sort of manifestation of the demonic. We're scared or fearful for no physical reason. Yes, the devil is at work in our world, pulling us away from God. And all of that means that we face the wrath of God. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. By nature, objects of wrath, what that means is that you were born apart from God with a sinful nature. Now, I don't know how many of you are parents here that have noticed that children are born with a sinful nature. What's remarkable, I've got three kids, and there is a point where you realize that your children have a sinful nature. You realize this beautiful thing that you've brought into the world is willfully rebellious and disobedient, manipulative, evil at times, bent on your destruction. And no, there will be people here in this room that say, no, kids are amazing, we love kids. And we would say, you don't have kids, do you? <laughs> Some parents look at their kids and are like, I can't believe they, they did that. And of course they did. It's because they are by nature children needing a new nature. That's why our job as parents is not just to teach our kids good morals, but it's to evangelize them. And this is the final nail in the coffin. Not only are we dead in our sin, not only are we, uh, not only are we following helplessly the ways of the world and the devil, but we stand condemned for this behavior. We are by nature children of wrath. And this is an unusual scary word to use at this point. We're not just in the doghouse. We're not just, I don't know, in God's bad books and he's sitting up in heaven and he's sort of waving and wagging his finger at us. God isn't peeved. He's not frustrated or even full of animosity or revenge at the evil that's in our hearts. His response isn't subjective to mood swings, but it is the divine response to evil and sin. Quite simply, wrath is the holy terrifying hostility of God towards evil. 
Wrath is the holy, terrifying hostility of God towards evil. And the wrath of God is to create in us a sense of urgency, that we're under a death sentence. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And all of us here need to accept the rescue that is on offer today. Listen to Paul's appeal, and we're finishing with this. He changes tact mercifully in verse 4. As a result of the overwhelming love of God, Paul makes some stunning declarations which correspond to the central events in the life of Christ, resurrection, ascension, and his session at the right hand of God. So number one, we're made alive with Christ, verse five. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, <clears throat> excuse me, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's a familiar theme in this letter. What is true of Christ is true of us when we are in Christ. In Christ, we have been literally plucked from the grave and breath put into our lungs. But not only that, Paul says that we've been raised and seated with Christ. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You're allowed to smile at these bits because these are like the good bits in the preacher, okay? We've been raised up and seated with Christ in heaven. That is part of the rescue that God does in our lives. Um, Any of you that have had the privilege of flying, have any of you ever been upgraded? Anyone upgraded? Wow, quite a few. I've only been upgraded once in my life. It was an internal flight, sadly very short, in America. And um, it's a wonderful moment when you're called over to the check-in desk and you, the good news is given to you and you're told, Mr. Hatch, you've been upgraded. You are now seated in first class. In that moment, I'm not going to get all funny and say, well, actually, I'm not seated in first class right now. I'm stood here in front of the desk. I'm not going to get all sh- like funny with the lady. But that is sort of a funny dynamic. You have now been upgraded and you're seated, seated in first class. And no, I'm not. I'm still here. And it's that tension that is being described in these verses. You know, I understand what what the lady means is that my destiny on the plane has now been changed. And that destiny means that things are totally different now. It means I can look down my nose on the economy (laughs) class passengers. It means that there's a lovely first class lounge that I can use and there's free stuff there. It means that I can board the plane first. It means I get to exit first. It means that I get the best food. It means that I have more legroom. It means that I can look around the corner, past that little curtain thing, at all that cattle class in the back. You see, in the future, and nothing can thwart this, I'm a first-class passenger. And that new position has an impact now. That destiny has been secured by that wonderful lady at the check-in desk. And the Apostle Paul is saying something very similar about our destination. That in the work of Jesus, on the cross and through his resurrection, and then him sitting down at the right hand of the Father, my future is now different. I get to do that too. I am now seated in heavenly realms. That is the promotion that has happened in Christ. Nothing can stop this happening, and it means that I do live differently now. 
Faith leads to rescue, but it also leads to a different life. What is that different life? Well, the Bible calls it good works. So you've got works, bad rescue. You've got Jesus' rescue, the one full of grace. But if you accept that, then it leads to good works. Rescue that's based in his works, if you receive it, leads to your works. And that is how Paul finishes this whole thing. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is not just resurrection, but this is full-on promotion, right to the top, right into the spiritual realms, right to the seat next door to God's. So a rescue is presented to us today. A rescue from works, a rescue from sin, the false promises of this world, Satan and God's wrath. A rescue that transforms you from dead to alive, to be lifted in a new position. You know, there's a wonderful song that has been sung for thousands of years that describes this event. Why don't you just close your eyes for a moment? This is the promise of God for your life. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children, praise the Lord. Guys, you can open your eyes. Christianity isn't someone, or being a Christian isn't someone who does good things. Being a Christian isn't someone who attends church, comes to mission groups, serves, but a Christian is someone who has let Jesus rescue them. And I wanna ask you, have you received that rescue? Have you received that rescue? Have you looked at your life and seen what you've built on? And are you trusting in Jesus to save you? Are you trusting in your own works? You know, if you're interested in going on that journey of discovery, we run something called the intro course. And that gives you time and space to find out who this person Jesus is and how he can rescue you from a life apart from God. And Ben Weber here. He's running intro. He'd love to chat to you afterwards. And I have this fly here that you can pick up. Guys, do you want to stand your feet? I'd love to pray for us as we finish. Perhaps you just close your eyes for a moment. And uh, I pray for anyone here. Uh, that perhaps has been bought by a friend that's come along. Perhaps you've been coming here a while and you've yet to receive the rescue that is on offer. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would um, open your eyes to see the gift that is before you. And the simple way to receive the gift is say sorry for living and trying to save yourself and to put your trust wholly in the person of Jesus. And for the rest of us, I pray God, open our eyes to how wonderful this rescue is. It sometimes feels like it can grow a little bit blunt. We can drift from it. We wake up not feeling the reality of the privilege it is to come before you today. 
Please open our eyes and remind us how glorious our standing is today. Thank you, Lord, that we are positionally at the right hand of God and that changes our lives now. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, in this place. Help us to see the the glorious, glorious truth in your word and in our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.